uh, the heart of the story of Jesus with his suffering and death and resurrection. Uh, the rest of the story is certainly important, as we've seen Luke uh, really confronting us with this question of who Jesus is and what is he like and how will we respond to him. But now we approach the heart of Christ's mission on earth. This is what he came to do. The rest of the story really only makes sense in the light of the cross. We can't make sense of Jesus until we understand the cross, at least not understand him correctly without understanding that this is what he came to do. Well, today's sermon text is sort of an introduction to the rest of what follows in the book of Luke. And so today's sermon is kind of an introduction to the rest of this series, which we'll be looking at between now and uh, Advent, uh, Lord willing. Uh, today's theme is the preparation. Uh, what we see today really sets the stage for what will follow as Christ's enemies make preparations, but Christ himself also makes preparations, and the context for all of this is the feast called Passover, which we read in verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. <coughs> Excuse me. So this is really the theme that unites all of today's sermon texts. Luke starts by telling us that it is Passover season because he intends for us to make this connection to connect the preparations made by both Judas and the chief priests to murder Jesus, but also the preparations made by Jesus, Peter, and John to celebrate the Passover and connect all of that with what follows. So I know that um, I mentioned Advent and a serious question that thinking people ask once we get to Advent season is whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie or not. And uh, I don't really know the answer, uh, that's just maybe kind of semantics, but Luke is clearly telling us that what we are about to read is a Passover story. That's the context for this. Passover, <coughs> in case you are unaware, is really the major Jewish holiday. It remembers God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. If you read, go back to the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, uh, would be the best place to go. Uh, the next best place to go might be the Prince of Egypt movie, but um, followed, by, uh, followed by the one with Charlton Heston in, in that order. We'll rank those. But the Bible is the, the best to go back to the source. But Israel had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, and they cry out to the God of their fathers, and he hears their cry. And, of course, as the song says, uh, he sends Moses to tell old Pharaoh, let my people go. God sends ten plagues or ten wonders, as they're called, each preceded by an opportunity for Pharaoh to avoid the disaster by releasing God's people. But Pharaoh refuses until the final plague, the death of the firstborn sons of every house of Egypt. Finally, he relented for a moment anyway, and the people of Israel had a chance to escape brutal oppression. And they ate unleavened bread, <coughs> which means bread made without yeast, uh, because they had to leave Egypt and didn't have time to wait for the yeast dough to rise. That's what this symbolizes, is their flight from, from Egypt. And they also sacrificed a Passover lamb to remember the sacrifice that was necessary for them to escape that same judgment that fell on Egypt. They would slaughter a lamb, spread its blood around the door to their homes, and the angel of death that brought the final plague would pass over those homes. So Luke is telling us a Passover story, 
And let me just be clear that I do mean to say that this is a true story. Sometimes people hear the word story and think fiction or made up. I'm using the word story not to say that this is a fiction. It is not a fiction. But to say that this is not merely a collection of abstract facts and concepts, but it is a narrative, it is a story, it is an unfolding series of events as God acts in history. And this is a Passover story. So we come to verse 2 and read of some preparations going on here. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him, that is Jesus, to death, for they feared the people. Just to review here, the chief priests are leaders, of course, among the priesthood, among those who stand before God on behalf of his people, offer sacrifices that enable his people to stand before a holy God. Essentially, they oversee the center of Israel's worship. You could call them chief worship leaders in a sense. And then you have the scribes who are experts in the scriptures. Their job is to teach people of the word of God so that they might know him, know how to live in a way that honors him. And these are the people who are engaged in a conspiracy now to commit murder. They want Jesus dead. The God whose word and worship their lives revolve around has come in the flesh, in Christ. They don't recognize him. They see him as a, re- a rival to their own power and prestige, so they want him dead. But they can't figure out how to make that happen, and their problem is essentially political. They fear the people. Jerusalem at that point, because of Passover, would have been crowded, full to capacity with people who have come to Jerusalem to offer the sacrifices at the temple and celebrate Passover. Many of them who have come were followers of Christ. They shouted Hosanna, waved palm branches when he rode into town. They they flocked to him in droves everywhere he goes. You can't just grab him while he's surrounded by thousands of what they saw as religious fanatics who think he's a prophet or a king or even a messiah. That's just begging for revolt, for a riot, right? And that's why two chapters ago, they kept sending people to try to debate him. It's been a few months since we looked at that, but they were trying to trap him with words, trying to get him to say something that would turn the crowds against him, something unpopular. But those efforts just blew up in their faces, and Jesus only ends up looking better, and they look even worse. They could not beat the word made flesh in a battle over words. And then Jesus ends up, as we've saw the past couple weeks, prophesying about the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem as they know it. (coughs) Excuse me. So he can go about freely saying these incendiary things, whatever he wants, and there's not a blessed thing they can do to stop him. Jesus is calling the shots. All they can do is keep an eye out for the kind of opportunity they need to arrest him But there's someone else who's been waiting for an opportunity even longer. There is an enemy who has also tried to trick or trap Jesus all the way back in chapter 4 before Christ even began his earthly ministry. This enemy was much more cunning and skilled with words than the chief priests. He knew the scriptures better than the scribes, but he also failed and has been waiting for this opportunity to destroy Jesus ever since. And he finally makes his move. In verse 3, then Satan 
entered into Judas Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He, Judas, went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented, sought an opportunity to betray him in, in the absence of a crowd. So Satan makes his move here, the original enemy of both God and man. He had tried to tempt Jesus in the wilderness as he had tempted Eve in paradise. He has been watching helplessly as Jesus casts out his minions and even empowered the disciples to do the same. But one of those disciples is a weak link, a Judas called Iscariot. We have lots of questions about Judas Maybe it's, it's worth taking a, a moment to discuss this. You know, we wonder about his motivation. What on earth compelled him? Why did he decide to betray Jesus? And apparently part of his motivation we know from other gospel writers is money. Uh, that's what he gets out of it here. Uh, Matthew tells us that Judas was the one to raise the issue of compensation with the chief priests. He asked about getting money from this. Uh, John tells us that Judas was sort of the treasurer of the group. He oversaw their money bag and would embezzle funds for himself. Did he know Jesus was going to be killed? I don't know. Luke and the other gospel writers, they don't really dwell on Judas and what was going on in his heart and mind. I think there's a reason for that, which we'll get to later. Uh, this isn't a story about Judas, essentially. But uh, I'll do a little sidebar here for those who might be wondering, what does it mean when it says that Satan entered into Judas? You know, the Bible doesn't elaborate, but it clearly does not mean that Satan simply took over Judas's body so that Judas had zero control over his actions. As, as horrifying and as loathsome as this betrayal is, it is still in keeping with Judas's heart. In some key ways. The love of money, Paul said, is a root of all kinds of evils. And it's through that craving that Judas wandered away from the faith, wandered from Christ, and ends up piercing himself with many griefs. So Satan didn't take over Judas's body as if he were a mere puppet. But Judas was also, from the beginning, I don't think, a sincere follower of Jesus. It's not as if he had been totally innocent and unaware and completely committed to Christ, and then Satan somehow was able to grab him and drag him away, force him to betray Jesus against his will, as it were. Satan cannot snatch away anyone who is genuinely in the hand of Jesus, not because of their strength, but because of the strength of Christ. So this seems to be more than a run-of-the-mill temptation or suggestion that Satan has made to Judas, but Judas does betray Christ knowingly and willfully. It's as if they're working together in some kind of hellish harmony almost. Well, <clears throat> what we see here is that the people who oversee God's worship and teach God's word are glad when they hear what Satan and Judas together have to say. They strike a deal with this friend of Christ. They agree on the price to be paid for his life. And then what do they do? Uh, they wait. They're still looking for an opportunity, which is kind of ironic since that's what they were doing before. Uh, even, even with Satan's help, they are still unable to arrest Jesus in the absence of a crowd. They still fear the people. 
what they've really gained is simply a double agent to let them know when that opportunity might arise. But as it turns out, the time and place of the arrest is not something they are able to engineer. It will depend entirely on the plans of Christ himself. The ball is still in his court, as it were. And so, Luke, as we see, turns to consider the plans of Jesus. While the chief priests and the scribes are plotting and scheming, Jesus himself is preparing for the Passover, as, of course, the chief priests and scribes ought to have been doing. We know from verse 21, as we'll see later uh, in later sermons, that Jesus is well aware of the plot against his life. Uh, We also know, verse 15 in this same chapter, that uh, what he really wants to do, even in that situation, is to eat the Passover meal with his disciples. And so that is what he is focused on as this unfolds. Uh, Verse 7, then the day came of Uh, unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Luke again reminds us that this is a Passover story, but now he sharpens that point a little bit. It is the day for the lamb to be sacrificed, to be slaughtered. As we turn to the events leading up to the cross, we connect this with the preparation for a sacrifice. And then in verse 8, The rest of the passage here, Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, so that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And that is a fair question, as we said. Jerusalem is crowded to capacity. There's a real logistical issue. Where are we going to find a place where all of us can meet that's not already reserved and spoken for? Where are we going to find a place for at least 13 people, assuming it's only Christ and his disciples, to celebrate this Passover. <coughs> Excuse me. So Jesus answers, uh, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. They went and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. You might be wondering, I used to wonder exactly what these Passover preparations might be. I I used to kind of tend to picture this like Peter and John, or it's almost like they're the high school prom committee, you know, they're blowing up balloons and hanging streamers in this room and making the centerpieces, and they have to find a band or a DJ, and they pick a theme like, you know, is it under the sea night? Hopefully it's not under the sea night. That's a little dark for Passover. You're going to have drowning Egyptian soldiers in your centerpieces. But, you know, scholars tell us that the theme was actually disco fever. No, it wasn't. It was not. It was not. Uh, The theme was the same theme as always, right? But what they had to do was purchase a lamb, have it sacrificed, go and buy everything else that was required for this Passover meal, the unleavened bread, bitter herbs, the wine, (coughs) and so forth. And of course, they have to find a place and reserve it with enough space and furniture all ready for them, at least 13 people again. And Peter and John, it's interesting that he chooses them because they are the two most prominent members of the 12 disciples. They are future leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And Jesus sends them grocery shopping. 
Why did he pick those two and not some lesser known uh, members of the, the disciples? You know, you've got James, the son of Alphaeus. What do we know about him? Not James, the James who is John's brother. Or there's Simon, who is, he's not Peter, but he's called Simon the Zealot. Or, you know, Judas, not Iscariot, the other Judas. I mean, this was really good thinking when you pick your disciples. You know, pick up an extra James, an extra Simon, even an extra Judas. You know, why not? Backup disciples. Why not send one of them to do the grocery shopping or just do Instacart or whatever? But Jesus sends James and John, leaders among the 12 apostles, and he sends them in the role of servants, sends them to meet a servant who himself had been sent to fetch water for the house. And this is such a contrast between these two acts of preparation. I won't spend a lot of time on this because it will come up in a later sermon as Jesus teaches his disciples uh, in light of their debate over who will be the greatest. But, you know, everyone in that conspiracy to murder Jesus was serving himself. The chief priests, the scribes, they're seeking to eliminate a rival and uh, maintain their own power and prestige. Judas is seeking his cash payment. Satan sends his agent with a promise of, of wealth. But Jesus sends his followers to act as servants. He is implicitly making that same point that he's going to say out loud later uh, after the Passover meal, that among the followers of Jesus, leaders are servants, because Jesus himself came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. So, But what is really important to note today is how Jesus makes this plan and why. The commentators like to discuss how Jesus knew they would find this man with the water jug who would lead them to this room. You know, I've always tended to read this and see that there's divine intervention at work. There's something miraculous or, or a God thing, as they would say. Some commentators like to be pedantic little killjoys and tell us that Jesus could have made arrangements with the homeowner already who just sent his servant out with a water jug simply as a means for the disciples to identify him and I don't know, whatever, I think, still think it was a God thing. But you know, if there's anything I can't stand, it's a pedantic little killjoy, because that's my shtick, really. But what's interesting for our purposes, though, is that Jesus, by whatever means, makes a deliberate plan to celebrate Passover at a secret, private location. It almost reminds me of some kind of spy movie. You know, Jesus doesn't tell them where the house is, doesn't give them an address or directions, but they have to meet this man who has a water jug and he'll lead them to the place and here's the message that you deliver. It's almost like, again, the movie where you meet the MI6 operative on the park bench and say something, you know, the dog barks at midnight and if he doesn't know the right answer, you know, you've got the wrong guy and you need to put a bullet in him or something. He didn't have them, you know, there were, there were no bullets here, but it's the same feel, the same kind of secrecy and why would you do that? Well, usually you do something secretly like this to avoid having your enemies figure out where you're going to be. But Jesus is doing this for the exact opposite reason. Again, he's fully aware that this location will be betrayed. He knows who his betrayer is. And he knows that the time of his arrest is near. In fact, he knows the time is near because he's actively bringing it near. Remember, they were looking for an opportunity away from crowds to arrest him. So he is making sure that the crowds don't know where he is. They won't be crowded around him. But Judas will betray that information to those who are seeking his life, seeking this opportunity. He's actually forcing them to accept 
his timing and not their own. Because Luke doesn't mention this, but Matthew and Mark do, that his conspirators, the conspirators rather, they wanted to wait until after the Passover to arrest Jesus since the crowds would start to thin out. But Jesus gives them their opportunity to arrest him during Passover, precisely when they did not want to do it. So we see Jesus still calling the shots. He wants this to happen during Passover. So this section, it started with this plot against Jesus' life, but then it's almost as if we hear a record scratch or something, and the scene suddenly shifts to Jesus in complete control, knowingly putting in action a Passover plan that will provide the exact opportunity they need. It is deliberate, and it is away from the crowd. But the whole story is now cast in a different light. We've shifted the paradigm from this conspiracy to commit murder to this preparation for the sacrifice, ultimately the sacrifice that Christ himself will make. So here's the point. Luke isn't telling us what happened to Jesus. And it's pretty doggone significant that none of the New Testament writers, the first followers of Jesus, none of them call for revenge or try to stir up resentment on those who conspired to destroy their teacher and their friend. That's what we would expect to happen, isn't it? But this isn't a story about the actions of corrupt leaders and the backstabbing betrayers or even the dark influence of Satan we have much less information than we would like about that. I think that's one reason the gospel writers leave us with so many questions about Judas. It's not about Judas. This isn't a story about what they did to Jesus. This is a story about what Jesus did for us. Luke is showing us what Jesus himself said in John chapter 10, that no one takes my life, but I lay it down of my own accord. So this is not a story, <coughs> excuse me, of the, the devious and wicked plot against the life of an innocent man. This is a story of God's great plan of redemption. It is a Passover story. And I don't just mean that this is a story that happens to take place on Passover. I guess maybe that's the, the diehard debate, right? I don't even mean that this is a story that has the same main themes of Passover, deliverance and, and sacrifice, this is a new Passover. This is a new exodus, a new act of God delivering his people from slavery, leading them to himself. So in this section that we're looking at today of plotting and preparation, Luke is preparing us, his readers, to hear this as a new story of redemption. This is how God delivers his people from slavery, slavery to sin, slavery to our our own idols and our own fallen desires, slavery to Satan, slavery through fear of death. That's how we are to see the events that follow as we read together the final days, final hours of Christ's earthly life. We read of his crucifixion, we read of his death, and yes, we see the powers of darkness at work, but just as in the book of Exodus, you know, Pharaoh's own hard heart only served God's purposes all the more to display his glory, display his power in delivering his people. So this conspiracy to murder Christ only served Christ's plan to give his life 
a ransom for many. Again, no one took his life. He gave it willingly for us. So in this new Passover, God the Son himself came in flesh to be the sacrifice. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Jesus did not come to unleash ten more plagues of God's wrath upon his enemies, but to take the wrath upon himself on behalf of everyone and anyone who will receive him. It's worth noting that on the first Passover in the book of Exodus, the Israelites needed a means of escape not simply from Egypt, but from the judgment that came with that last plague. That may seem unexpected. The angel of death came to take the lives of the firstborn of every house in Egypt, and the Israelites were not automatically exempt from that, were they? They had to offer that sacrifice of blood so the angel of death would pass over them. Now, there's lessons for us in this. We wonder sometimes why, as we look at the wickedness in the world, why doesn't God just come in judgment and destroy the, the tyrants today? And, and maybe part of the answer is if, the, if God did what we want, came and once and for all dealt with evil, who could stand? Who would be left? The tenth plague in Egypt was no more it was no mere calamity or disease sent to twist Pharaoh's arm. It was a night of divine judgment, a foretaste of the day of the Lord. It's escalated so much far, so far above. And this is a recurring theme that we come to in Scripture. Is, if God is going to come in judgment on earth to eradicate evil once and for all, how are any of us to escape? When God sent the flood in the days of Noah, he had to provide that means through the ark for Noah and his family to be saved. When he rained fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot and his family had to flee, and even then Lot's wife merely turned back to look and perished. So we might tend to think that the Israelites suffering, nowadays with our mindset, might tend to think that renders them innocent somehow because they had been the the, the suffering victims. And in a sense, they were, in their complaint against the Egyptians, innocent. Again, in a certain limited sense, they had done nothing to justify that enslavement, to, to give the Egyptians the right to treat them that way. God has compassion on them in this situation and hears their cries. He cares about their plight. <coughs> he, he did not minimize or ignore their suffering. And yet, that wasn't their biggest problem. They had a bigger existential threat, and that was the darkness in their own hearts, their slavery to sin. Before they even have the opportunity to leave Egypt, we hear them grumbling against God, doubting his promises. Before they get to the promised land, before they receive the Ten Commandments, they make an idol and, and worship it. Moses' own brother leads them in doing this. They were, in a sense, innocent before the Egyptians, but they were not innocent before God. They were subject to that same judgment. They needed an exodus. They needed a Passover story. It's interesting that it is called Passover, celebrating, naming it after not simply the, 
deliverance from Egypt, but the deliverance from God's wrath as he passed over their homes. Not a story of human ingenuity and perseverance, not an inspiring story of the tenacity of the human spirit and overcoming adversity, not a story about how there can be miracles when you believe. You know, I mentioned the Prince of Egypt movie as it's probably the best Exodus movie, but that song is so wrong. What we read in Exodus is that God did miracles even though they did not believe. And that's why we need to believe. Trust God because of what he has done for us. Our faith is a response to him. His, his works are not dependent upon us. Yeah, they were innocent in relation to the Egyptian slave masters, but not innocent before God. Their redemption from slavery would depend on God's grace, God's initiative alone. God not only intervened to set them free from slavery, from captivity, but intervened to provide the sacrifice for sin that was their ultimate need. And Lord willing, next week we'll talk a little bit more about what the Passover means for the people of God, all the things that it accomplished for them and, and how that uh, informs how we understand the Lord's Supper that Jesus instituted for his followers. But for today, the key point, the key takeaway we'll wrap up with is that this is a Passover story that we're about to read and go over this coming fall. It is a story of God's mercy and God's grace. It's a reminder that it is not of anything that we contribute to. No merit of our own, no righteousness of our own, no good works of our own, but entirely what God has done for us in Christ. It's a reminder that we do not pick up the pen and write our own deliverance. God is the author of our salvation from beginning to end. We don't simply need a boost or a handicap. A God who helps those who help themselves is of no use to those who are completely unable to help themselves. A God who says, do your best and I'll do the rest is of no use to those of us whose best deeds are filthy rags. Our best contributes nothing. Jesus pays it all. We need him to do it all. By grace, we have been saved through faith. And even that is the gift of God, not works that no one may boast. This is a Passover story in the cross of Christ. It is a story of the wonders that God has done for his people so that the glory belongs to him and to him alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us the Passover story that we need, not a story of what we can do or a set of instructions for how we can earn our place with you but a story good news a gospel of what you have already done for us in the person and work of Christ Jesus Lord you know well how in so many times and so many ways we are tempted to doubt this good news to go back to Egypt, to go back to slavery as the Israelites were tempted to do, to go back to trying to earn our place with you, whether by boasting and 
priding ourselves in what we have done and forgetting our need for you, or by despairing and doubting that we could possibly ever stand before you, and so forgetting that this is a story of your mercy and your grace and what you desire for us to do is to take what you have freely given to us knowing that we are unworthy but knowing that you are a God who is filled with grace and loving kindness toward us. Help us, Father, to turn again and again to you, to remember that this is all of grace and to come boldly before you, receiving what you have given with joy. Restore to us the joy of your salvation, for it is your salvation belongs to you alone. To you alone be the glory. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name.